Hey, beautiful. My new book, Beautiful Writers, a journey of big dreams and messy manuscripts with tricks of the trade from best-selling authors is finally out in bookstores. I hope you'll pick up a copy for yourself or a creative in your life. If at any time you find yourself feeling out of your league or intimidated by the publishing industry, I hope my coming of career dreams, adventures, and misadventures will support you to find and believe in your own path. Nothing makes me happier on the page or on the airwaves here than having the chance to remind you that you're magic and you have every reason to believe in your dreams. Now, on to the show. You don't realize until you write a book how many people are going to see it and go, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. And if you have a personality where you already sort of hate yourself, (laughs) everything, if they're like, I'm not so sure, you got a lot of run-on sentences, then you're like, I'll never write again. I've never admitted this in public. When I was 25, my second child was diagnosed prenatally with Down syndrome. I've admitted that. I wrote a book about it. But I was keeping these voluminous journals because I couldn't cope. I was so beyond sad and in pain and everything. So I wrote like 19 journals filled with tiny script. And at a certain point, a little part of me, and I only remember, like I only admitted this in hindsight, it went, this could be really funny and a good (laughs) book someday. And I've never written a book, never planned to. And since then it's like, Oh, and now I'm leaving my religion and my whole family hates me. Okay, that's going to be wonderfully funny at some point. Oh, now they're trying to kill me and I have death threats. This will be a laugh, right? God, I have missed this show. Hello, writers and readers and lovers of all the creative things that make life worth living. We are back from book delivery hiatus and full delivery. Well, I didn't actually deliver him, but... I was the midwife and someone's got to pick up all that baby horse poop. So I've been busy and it's been a minute. I'm Linda Sievertson. And today on the Beautiful Writers Podcast, we have the delightfully sensitive, hilariously honest and adorable humans, the New York Times bestselling authors, Jenny Lawson and Martha Beck. They are here because I flipped for their latest bestsellers, Broken and The Way of Integrity. And I had a sense these two would radically hit it off. Turns out, I'm psychic. Martha believes that when we get more honest, the point of maybe her most important book of the 10 she's written, that we get more magical. She's got three degrees from Harvard, including a PhD, and has written the most engaging O Magazine columns since its inception. So when Martha announces a finding, this mama considers it gospel. And as scary as truth-telling may be, Who doesn't want to get more magical? Likewise, for really personal family reasons, you'll soon hear when Jenny Lawson shares how she copes with extreme depression and OCD and life, the mama bear in me is all ears. I first became a diehard Jenny Lawson fan when I picked up her juggernaut, Let's Pretend This Never Happened, and on the cover was a testimonial from Jesus saying, quote, fucked up in the best possible way, adorably offensive, Jesus was with an asterisk and below in tiny print, it said, Jesus is the author's hairdresser. You can tell him apart from the other Jesus because they pronounce their names differently. (laughs) When the rest of the book was just that funny, I was a fan. Okay, 
Let's get going. I had so many questions and you guys, we get into such great stuff here, including are they really telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth in their laugh out loud stories or do they exaggerate for the page? How do they coax the muse and get the good stuff down when they do wrangle her? And what do their writing schedules and practices look like? And who scares the crap out of them to show their work to? Do they ever want to say, screw it and just quit altogether? And how does one get off the couch or the floor when life feels way too hard to even contemplate fixing dinner, much less finishing a whole book? I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Welcome. Hello. Hi, Jimmy Lawson. I have to say, of all the writers I've ever read, ever, including the Bronte sisters and like Mad Max, the person I identify with the most is Jenny Lawson. Oh, you just made my day. Yep. With the man, with the no energy, with the one (laughs) I run away from everybody, with the lie on your face on the floor for a month. It's all like my people. It's... Oh, and you know, we think that there's just like two people like that. And then it turns out, even if it's just 2%, there's so many of us. So I many. know. So you many. never hear from us because we're lying down. But that is exactly everywhere. I always think to myself, who would be the perfect people to sit over coffee with? And with this one, Marty, it was so obvious. It just took a while with Jenny. Jenny, I've been trying to interview you for what? Five years ago, I think I met you. And, from, so, and I've yeah. been stalking her the entire time. <laughs> it's been a long time. It's been, you are caught now. <laughs> Behold, oh, Jenny, you no, are caught not. between the rock and the hard place. Finally, <laughs> It is so nice to be back after hiatus from this show with you too. I was so struck by the fact, Martha, that you've written a book about integrity, which you explain is essentially wholeness. You're undivided when you're in an integrity. And then Jenny, You've written a book called Broken, which at first blush sounds like not being whole, but it very much is. So Martha, can you start by giving us a sense of the magic of living in integrity and wholeness and look at Jenny and see her take on this? Well, I think everyone feels broken at some point. People just hide it better than others. And most everybody tries to hide it. Jenny, (laughs) by not hiding it, has done us all this huge service. But the rest of us, We're born whole in our true nature. We come out and we're like, everything's beautiful and I belong. And then before we can even talk, we start to feel pressured to act differently from the way we really feel. So sometimes they'd rather have a smile than cry. Sometimes it's just an energy. Babies really pick up energy and it's like, oh, I'm doing this wrong. And so we modify our behavior. And in doing so, we often sell out our truth. And my premise after 30 years of doing self-help stuff and coaching and stuff, is that the degree of our psychological suffering, psychological, is our distance from our own truth. So if we've split ourselves off to please others or to try to meet any end that we think is important, but we're not actually listening to who we really are and we're not allowing that to be our entirety. So we've got, now we're not in integrity, which means one thing. We're in duplicity, which means two (laughs) things. And the degree of our duplicity that establishes the degree of our suffering. And when you come back into integrity, even if there's still physical and even emotional pain, there is not this horrifying suffering that sends so many people 
into depression and despair and the offices of life coaches. Which is the worst of all. (laughs) I totally agree. The ability to become whole is, I think, something that is that we all sort of struggle with. The, you know, the name broken comes from the struggles that I have with, you know, depression, anxiety, and avoidant personality disorder, and rheumatoid arthritis, and blood disorders, and just all sorts of fun, wonderful things that you, you don't really want to have in your life. But the rest of it, the broken in the best possible way, is about the fact that in spite of the fact that I'm having to deal with all of that, it actually has made me so much more empathetic and compassionate and able to look at other people and go, I bet you are fighting something that I know nothing about. Mm -hmm. Um, So in so many ways, even though I would not be like, yes, please give me more depression, there are so many silver linings to the negatives. Oh, yeah. So could I just say something about allowing ourselves to be broken and the difference between that and integrity and not in integrity? Because I can't stand not coaching everyone I meet. <laughs> so, you know, in her wonderful book, Jenny writes about not even having the energy to get to the couch to lie down, lying on the floor instead yeah. and watching deadlines whoosh past because she's too sick and too sad. And that has been my life, right? <laughs> I mean, I have these moments in front of the camera that have a lot to do with stimulants. No, not really. But I do get myself geared up and then I collapse. But here's the thing. So Jenny, this is my question. So it's a really bad day. You have no energy left. You're crawling toward the couch and then you're like, oh, screw it. And you just lie there because that's the only thing you can do. Now, in your mind, there is a story, a cultural story that says, this is not okay. (laughs) Um, I should be producing things. I should be hitting my deadlines. People want things from me. I have like this vast internet crowd and you're lying there and that's what's in your head. Notice the emotional quality of horror and despair. (laughs) Okay, so now imagine that you're still lying there and something comes in and says, You are not meant to be anything other than you are. And this is absolutely perfect. This spot on the floor is where God, the universe, whatever, this is where you're meant to be. And you're not supposed to move right now. Just like enjoy doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing in this moment, which is what you're doing right now. And you're still lying on the floor. Can you feel a shift? Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's, so, so important to be able to, to change that and make that shift. I think it's hard because depression lies to you when you're in a depression and you automatically want to believe, you know, your depression saying like, you know, you're worthless and you're never going to be funny again and you're never going to be active again. But I agree with you in, in a lot of ways, including that when my kid was young, I had so much guilt about the fact that when my depression would hit, I couldn't do anything at all. And the only thing that I could do was just like hang onto the couch and keep breathing and survive the day. Then as my kid got older, once they were old enough that I was able to talk to them about, this is what depression is. Because before they were just like, oh, mom's tired, mom's sick. And Mm, and yeah. To them and I explained to them and I was like, I I just want to apologize because, you know, everybody else's mom, they were, they were the Girl Scout mom. They did this and they 
cooked dinners and they did this. And my child was like, I don't have any bad memories of you hanging onto the couch. I have memories of you sitting on the couch with me and we'd watch Doctor Who and we had all this time and you weren't something else. And you weren't Mm -hmm. like, oh, I've got to get dinner on or, oh, I've got to talk to my friend or oh, like it was just me and you. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes it's about like changing that perspective. Yeah. So wholeness and honesty, not trying to pretend to be anything we are. That's what our kids pick up from us. And when you go to it, even depression, which I've suffered from a huge amount, not for a while though, because if you can get deep enough into your truth, if you keep drilling through what people think you should be all the way to the truth, this is what you did with Haley. You drill in, was that really not supposed to be happening? And there's a place where even in depression, I just had a foot surgery and it was really painful. And I got down for a couple of days in a way that I don't usually anymore, but I spent decades there before. And when it rises up, if I go in deep enough, there's a part that sort of wraps its wings around me and says, depressed is what you're supposed to be right now. It's okay to be depressed. And I relax into the hopelessness even. And then we feel our unity with all the other people who have been to this place before. And there's an infinite compassion Mm-hmm. at the depth of that. Mm-hmm. So even though depression lies, there's another part of us that's trying to, the only reason we know depression lies is that part of us knows the truth. And the challenge is always, whether it's depression, whether it's illness, whether it's your mother, whether it's all of society, to hear what causes suffering and look it in the eye and say, you are not the truth because the truth heals. The truth yes. does set us free. And after 30 years of trying, I really came to believe that that is the single thing we need to do is just keep reaching more and more deeply into the truth of what we feel in our souls. And it will get even below things like blinding physical pain and sadness. And I don't want to take away from anybody. I'm not going to say, oh, just turn that frown upside down. That is just 100% bullshit. But I do say that frown is precious. Yeah. And you can treasure it and you can treasure yourself with it and don't let anybody ever tell you different. And then even in the pain, integrity makes us whole. Mm-hmm. And then then actually our days of suffering, I think, are numbered. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I have so much I want to say about that. <laughs> I, but I want to get to lying specifically. Okay. Because well, start lying right now, Linda. I, think- <laughs> I mean, it's what you always do. <laughs> right? Always. No. I think lying is such a juicy topic, especially when it comes to writing. And I want to get to that too. But first, I want to start by saying that I have thought somewhat obsessively about this idea of radical truth-telling since I was a little kid. And my father used to say what you say, Martha, in the way of integrity, that lying makes us physically weak. Oh, that's research. That's just math. Well, my dad, I did. my dad had taken an oath when I was a kid that he would never tell a lie, no matter the consequences. And oh my, my grandmother had died at 49 and we had other tragic early death in my family. I was all about anything that could ensure longevity. So when my father's best friend, a guy named Edgar Phillips, he recorded an LP in 1978 called Words to Live By, which it's in front of me right now. And he made it so that people everywhere could take this integrity oath. And mm. I, I wanted to take it as a kid. I really wanted to. And 
Just like your no lie challenge, Martha, I was convinced that a life without lies was going to be magical. And I mostly have lived that way, which is not easy. Um, it's been pretty magical too. It I mean, is really. It is really magical. But people don't always understand. My ex-husband used to yell at me like, why do you always have to be like Jesus? And I'm like, no, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to be fucking magical. But the downside, <laughs> the downside of watching my father never lie was seeing him say things like, my, that is a haircut. Instead of just coming out and saying, yeah, I don't like it. So my point is that telling the whole truth when you know it's going to hurt somebody's feelings is not always comfortable in our world. No. Like I watched him make his mother cry, my grandmother, when he told her one Christmas Eve that he didn't really like her gifts. So I was a kid. I was horrified. So how can we be honest and not be an asshole? I mean, my dad was not not an asshole, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, I am a huge flaming asshole, so I'm not sure. But I think I can't speak to this. Then I want to hear what Jenny has to say. Again, it's about, there's a level at which we tell the truth where it's still in the realm of society. You know, here's a gift. Do you like it or not? Now, as a person, I'm constrained by things like what I've grown to, what I've seen in my life, what I think a good haircut looks like and all that. And if I'm there and I tell the truth, then I'm still in culture. That is atrocious. That hair belongs in 1986, whatever. (laughs) And that would be the truth at one level. But the thing about telling the truth all the time, and I don't advise that people take an integrity oath as severe as I did, but I did, when I was 29, I didn't lie for an entire year and my entire life blew up. Except my happiness emerged for the first time. So anyway, if you keep telling the truth, you go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And always you're asking yourself, is what I'm about to say the truth? So say somebody comes in with a horrible haircut and they've had a wasp sting and half their face is swollen up and they're wearing like a jock strap from an Italian <laughs> nudist beach that wouldn't work, but an Italian beach of some kind. Sorry, Italians. Oh my God, I'm so inappropriate. Anyway, um, you look at them and what you see is you stop seeing them with the eyes of a person and you see them with the eyes of it. You see them with the eyes of compassion, capital C. You see them with the eyes of that which is beyond physical, which the truth will take you to. It will take you all the way out of the physical realm. And you look at that person with the wasp sting, with the bad swimming suit and the horrible haircut, and they are beautiful. And I don't mean in a, you know, here's your consolation prize way. They are a divine human being struggling their way through this incredibly difficult world. And they are love itself and they are exquisitely beautiful. And you look at them and you say, oh my God, you are beautiful. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't gotten there, you're still lying. Wow. Wow. You don't know it. People don't lie to be bad. Mostly we lie to try to be good, but Great. see what I mean? Try not to, try not to hurt people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to talk about truth-telling as it relates to our writing. So yesterday, I thought of you two. We had a wrought iron gate being installed in our house with a banister and the drilling noise was deafening. It sounded like a jackhammer in the house. And Larry, my husband said, huh, that sounds like my ex-girlfriend's vibrator. Now, <laughs> Of course, of course he was. That's what she used. <laughs> of course he was. I, I'm assuming he was kidding mostly, but but it was funny. And it got me thinking about how we as writers use our humor. We use our self-deprecation to tell, 
you know, more entertaining stories. And I wonder where that line is between telling the truth in your life and using creative storytelling. And I was thinking, Jenny, about your, you know, your dicks stuck in your car holes at the post office and how everyone <laughs> thinking that you're buying tiny dildos. And I think, oh, God, there had to have been a little bit of exaggeration in that story. But you know, what's funny is, Every story where somebody is like, that can't possibly be true. Those are the stories that are the most true. They are the ones where I could not make it up. Where in fact, I I will not even write the story. And then my husband will be like, you have got to tell the story. It's so funny. And I'm like, no, because people won't believe it. Um, So actually, I have a tendency to use creative storytelling more likely to get rid of things that I'm like, there is no way somebody would believe this. So I'm just not even going to talk about it at all. That's um, yeah. I'm going to wait until I'm further along. You know, like there's, there's some stories in this book where I was like, I could not have told this in the first book because people didn't know me enough to know weird stuff happens to me. But now they know me enough to be like, oh, okay, we followed you for 15 years. You know, okay, that could happen. <laughs> and Martha, you too. Oh my God, I will never forget the visual. And I haven't read this in years, so I'm going to get it way wrong. This is totally off the top of my memory. But I remember years ago, you were teaching yourself HTML and you had glasses, but the glasses oh. taped them to your face. I totally, I was, I was like, like, there is no way she actually taped the glasses oh, to her face. I did. <laughs> I literally became a 14-year-old boy. I had this computer scientist teaching me to write, to make websites. And he actually kind of moved in for a while and he was the classic nerd. And I honestly think that I sucked in his personality by osmosis or something. Because, and by the way, I don't know if this happens to you guys, but we would literally put in the code and then I would press enter and the whole thing would blow up. And then we'd do it again and he would press it and it would work. And he finally yeah. told me, here's the thing. If you're really into it, the, the computer can sense your fear. He said, we don't tell people this, but you literally have to press enter and then run to the other side of the room. I was like, okay. So that's what I spent all my time doing. I didn't sleep. I got really zitty and my glasses kept breaking and I would scotch tape them together. I had it on the temples. I had it on the nose piece. And then they were these lenses that just, they fell out. Like the frames disintegrated under the power of my weirdness. (laughs) And I thought, wait, as an engineer, I have not thought through all the structural aspects of this problem. So I went and I got clear packing tape and I taped the lenses to my head so that I could keep coding. We're creating goggles. science. There you go. Science, you are welcome, people out there. I'm going to say you're welcome. And my assistant is going to say that because she always says to me, Linda, what is it your aura is so powerfully crazy because shit breaks around me. I had an app on the app store and it was this thing I was so proud of. And one day Apple was like, sorry, we can't, your registration isn't right. I worked for like 17 hours with all these people. And finally, the head guy at Apple was talking to me. He goes, I'm just going to tell you something secret. And here here I'll, I'll blab it. He goes, sometimes the computers just have a life of their own and it's AI at this point and we don't even know what they're doing. And I was like, oh my God. So that's when I just went, okay. I'm going to trust that spirit knows what's happening and I'm not supposed to have an app anymore. I mean, what the F? I have the exact same thing. Um, <laughs> and my husband is a computer guy and he'll come and he'll be like, this isn't possible. I know. This is not possible yes. this not to work. <laughs> and I am just like, okay, it is a curious statistical anomaly that yeah. anytime I'm around, like I'll walk up to a cash register and the whole thing will shut down. 
Like I mm-hmm. think other Well, I have lights, street lamps go out when I walk by. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, but that's because I blow them up with dynamite. <laughs> you know oh my God, like right before the recording, the last thing Rose said to me is, please try to keep your energy a little bit low because we need the mechanics to work. Oh my God, you guys. We'll see. I feel like I've found my people. Oh, the yeah. three of us could go like, we could go to Vegas and shut everything down quiet. Except exactly. I would never go to Vegas because I would die of anxiety. Oh my gosh. Okay, so Jenny, my sister is the most amazing editor and she knows my story intimately. And for years, every time I would send her a draft of a book that I was working on, she would point out what she liked. But then she would say, here's why it's still not working for me. And it was so painful. I wanted to silence the messenger by mm-hmm. never sending my sister another effing page of anything I ever wrote again. And yet, every time I would wrap my mind around the truth of what she was saying and rework the material, I was always so grateful for the messenger. And you always talk about how you're notoriously slow at putting your books out, which I don't see it as slow because I am too. And you're, you're actually faster than I am. But do you have somebody in your life who gives you notes where you just, you're just like, oh my God, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so my husband no longer gets to read my books. Uh, <laughs> he does have the opportunity to, like I do say, you can read it. And if there's something that you see and you're like, oh, don't put that in there. But he knows enough to know that the way that he gives uh, criticism is actually harmful to me. Um, and it stops. <laughs> makes me feel like, I never want to write again. Everything I write is terrible. Uh, so what I've done instead is I have found three friends who are like my beta readers. Mm-hmm. And what I will do is I will call them and I will read to one of them and I'll listen for like, are they laughing at the right place? Do they yeah. stop me and go, wait, what is this? And I know that first of all, they're going to encourage me. But secondly, they're going to be very honest. And then I can fix it. And then I can call the next person. And I can be <laughs> a week later and I'll be like, okay, let me read this. And they'll be like, am I the first one hearing it? And I'm like, oh yeah, totally. Totally, you're the first one. Um, <laughs> I am a liar. And so, yeah. And then after that, it goes to my agent and, you know, She's very, very, she's so, so kind, but so good about saying, I love this. I wish it was a little bit more, like she's found like the Jenny language. Yeah, yeah. And then it goes to my real agent, this goes with a copy editor, it goes to the, I mean, you don't realize until you write a book, how many people are going to see it and go, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. And if you have a personality where you already sort of hate yourself, (laughs) everything, if they're like, I'm not so sure. You had a lot of run-on sentences. Then you're like, I'll never write again. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's hard to both listen to the criticism because you're not going to get better if you don't, but also not get steamrolled by it. And, you know, I think one of the biggest issues that writers have, and, and especially so like, you know, my book came out a couple of months ago. And so right now I'm at that period where you start to see a lot of reviews. Yeah. And people always say like, don't read your reviews. Don't read your reviews. And of course, don't read your reviews. But of course you read your reviews. You go in and you're like, what's this one star guy say? You know, oh, he must be totally right. I think I am actually a UFO. What? I didn't. (laughs) Um, So yeah. Martha, what say you? Who do you get afraid to show your work to? Everyone. Absolutely everyone. (laughs) And 
thank God I live with one of the best writers I've ever met, Rowan Mangan, my partner in work and life. And she, oh God, I must have the first novel. chapter. Of her new novel life. is so breathtaking. It hasn't gotten out there yet, guys, but when it does, oh my God. So I must have written the first chapter 40 times and I was so proud of myself. <laughs> Take that, I would say. And I'd give it to her and she'd say, and she doesn't, you know, the agents do learn the, I love this. I wish it would. Well, not Roe. She's like, Marty, it does not work. This no. does not work. And That's I, my sister. And I throw myself upon the floor. I mean, this must be how Victor is too. I throw myself upon the floor and roll around in anguish. And she's like, still didn't work. <laughs> but I got to tell you guys the worst experience. Oh, I hope my publishers don't hear this. But this was one of the most painful things that ever happened. I sent in the manuscript for this book on March 2nd, 2020. The day Manhattan started seriously shutting down and no one knew what the pandemic was. Uh, and everyone thought it was, you know, the middle ages and we were all going to be dead in minutes. And they were moving out of the offices. Yeah. And I think that my editors, I had two, I think they read the manuscript during this time. And what I know about the brain is when you're scared, yeah. you actually can't take in written information very well. So I get back this thing and I am so proud of it because Roe has approved it. And I feel like this is the best thing I've ever written. And they wrote back and they were like, what the F are you thinking? I cannot follow this. It makes no sense. I, for three months, I just lay on the ground. And then I cut a bunch of words and I put something in about the pandemic, but I didn't change it that much. Sent it back to them six months later and they were like, this is a completely different book. It's so coherent. It reads like an actual book. And I'm like, no, it's just oh, that you guys aren't COVID right at the moment. Yeah. But that was literally one of the most horrifying things that it, it was, I would rather be shot. You know, I, I had on my, um, I think it was, it was my first book. You know, there are these, there's like four big reviews that you're looking for. And I, I'm not going to mm. say like which one it was, but you look for like these four reviews are the ones that, you want them to be really good reviews. And like three of them came out and they were like, this is a great book. And I was so excited. I was like, oh, and another one came out and it was just like, it was really not good. And not only that, but the reviewer used a word to describe it that I literally had to go look up because I didn't even, and I was like, I'm so stupid. I'm not even smart enough to understand this review. And it just, uh, it just, and my agent was like, don't pay attention to that. That's just one person. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about oh. it. Two months later, the book comes out. It's a number one New York Times bestseller. The same company puts out a review of the same book, but it's the audiobook. And they're like, a tour de force. Oh, and I'm like, my God. I just read it to you. Like, what? <laughs> so, and you know, lie. Everyone is lying. This is the point of my book. Don't listen <laughs> to anyone. Exactly. <laughs> Think up your own mind. <laughs> exactly. I remember when I was oh, interviewing God. Ann Patchett and she said that some reviewer, it may have been the LA Times, came out and said that Bel Canto was a third-rate episode of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So everybody has those stories. Everybody is just so... It's so humilif... What's the word? Um, Humilifying. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> I was talking to Brene Brown and we were talking about the shapely narrative. Brene was saying that one of her superpowers is absorbing human behavior, which we know. It's what she does as a researcher. It's how she's trained. And then she said that one of her kryptonite pieces is that sometimes she'll have 
like say a fight with Steve, her husband, or a really tough parenting moment. And she, in that moment, she will detach from life and kind of float above it and watch herself struggle so that she can use it for her writing. And she was like, no, it's really kind of dangerous. And I said, yeah, it is. And what I said to her was that I had been talking with my mentor, Betsy Rappaport, about that and how we have in our mind, we're creating this shapely narrative. And Betsy said the best line. She said, oh yeah, that's when you have a narrative that's too good to lose. <laughs> so, mm, so I yeah. want to talk about this. I love it. I want to talk about this getting more attached to the shapely narrative than what is happening in present time, real life. And does that ever happen to you guys? I have on so many occasions, Victor and I will be in the middle of an argument and I will say, hold on, I have to write down what you just said because no one will believe it's so stupid. (laughs) Um, and, And none of these arguments ever actually end up in the book. But there's something about him going, ah, uh, let me look at it. Another stuff. Okay. Yeah. And I'm like, you would be the villain in the reality TV show. Everybody would be booing you and you would have no clue. And then he's like, ah, oh, all right. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. How about and, you, Marla? Oh, you can get a lot of those treasure moments by doing the integrity thing. Because like everything I wrote about in this book was because I decided to do something that was against culture and there ensued something so horrifying that I knew later it would be funny. And I I felt it. I've never admitted this in public. When I was 25, my second child was diagnosed prenatally with Down syndrome. I've admitted that. I wrote a book about it. But I was keeping these voluminous journals because I couldn't cope. I was so beyond sad and in pain and everything. So I wrote like 19 journals filled with tiny script. And at a certain point, a little part of me, and I only remember, like, I only admitted this in hindsight. It went, this could be really funny and a good <laughs> book someday. And I've never written a book, never planned to. And since then, it's like, oh, now I'm leaving my religion and my whole family hates me. Okay, that's going to be wonderfully funny at some point. Oh, now they're trying to kill me and I have death threats. This will be a laugh, right? Like, like literally everything in there. It was material. And I got it all by doing what was true for me instead of what the society says, because those are the moments when we reach our top horror. And what did you just call it? Humiliation. Humiliation. <laughs> when I make up words, I cannot be expected to remember them, Martha. Well, that's true. But that's why we have technology. Anyway, yeah, you can go straight into the worst thing of your life by just doing what is absolutely your truth in any given moment, but even more in a high stress moment. And then it will be horrible and you want to kill yourself all day long. And a month later, you will write it down and they will give you money. It's very helpful that so often I will feel like, okay, well, I've pretty much just wasted the last five years of my life. Like I've read some books and I binge watched a lot of TV and what else has happened? But being able to like write it down in a book and have these chapters and be able to say like, oh, actually I did accomplish life. And sometimes that, mm-hmm. that accomplishment is just, just surviving and just, oh, yeah. you know, just getting by. And sometimes that can be such a celebration. And so a lot of times when I start to feel like a failure or a loser, I will go back and I will reread my books. And even though my books are like, they're ridiculous. They're about, you know, getting a bag of dicks at the post office or <laughs> you know, they're all these mortifying, ridiculous, dumb stories, but they're all stories that I look at and I'm like, but they're entertaining. And oh, yeah. I can laugh when I look back at them. 
Well, and I think by the fact that you juxtapose them with so much wisdom and authenticity is what makes it really work. Because for my son, so my son has struggled throughout his life with depression and OCD. And when you say things, when you write things like, sometimes the only thing I can accomplish in a day is just surviving. It's both an amazing achievement and Mm. managed with shame. I want, as a mother of a child who has wrestled with this, I want to cheer because Mm. although he's doing amazing and helped start a company that's doing incredibly well, every once in a while, he still has a hard day and he'll have to lay down in the middle of the day to get through it. And he and I so appreciate people like the two of you who've been so honest and you put it next to such humor that we can get through it. Because for those of us who don't wrestle with these radical, like we all have mood swings. I bawled about my mother being dead for 25 years the other day on and off the entire day. So we all know what that feels like. But to have the extreme sort of depression, I haven't really felt that much in my life. So to have writers like the two of you be so honest and make it so real allows us to not only have compassion and empathy, but to really, really be able to hold the hand of somebody that we love who experiences it and not make them wrong and not try to cheerlead them out of it to be a safe container. And I just, I'm so grateful. And it takes that humor next to the honesty to make it work, I think. You know you're coming out of one of those depressive bits when for me, it's always been the same thing. Somebody comes and speaks the truth, which is you're exactly the way you're supposed to be right now. And I actually relax into the depression or into the pain or whatever's happening to me at the moment. And I've just started noticing this because meditation and everything. There's a moment when my body takes a breath on its own. (sighs) And if you have kids, you've had your kids give a huge cry, you know, and be depressed. And then they hear the truth. And it's like the body is coming back into its source of oxygen, which is the truth. And within 30 or 40 seconds, you've cracked a joke and you're laughing. It's exactly and that's how you know that the, you've reversed the, you've hit the watershed. Hmm. You know what else is so amazing about it? The other day, he was telling me he was teaching a webinar and in his business. And he said, You know, mom, when I talk about my struggles publicly, the things that our clients tell us that they appreciate the most is not the financial investing tips or the stocks tips we're giving, but it's the real how we get through a day when we're depressed. He said, that's what people come back for. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's working. This openness that people like you guys have helped spearhead and starting with Oprah. I mean, the blessed Oprah who brought brought everything out from the shadows. (laughs) It's just such a gift. It makes such a difference. And the fact that people are willing to listen to stories that are uncomfortable makes it more comfortable for other people to share. And then suddenly you realize, I mean, when I started writing about depression, what, 15 years ago, it felt really scary. And I think it's still scary for a lot of people and not everybody's in the position that they can share it. But compared to where we have been, it is so much that you know, you know somebody that you love somebody who has mental illness or that you will probably have it at some point Mm. in your future. And in Broken, I wrote about taking transcranial magnetic stimulation for my treatment resistant depression. And my depression is chemical, it's not experience based. Yeah. So mine is all about medication and just finding a way to change the chemistry of my brain. And all of the medication just doesn't really work. 
So I did transcranial magnetic stimulation, which was really difficult and long and expensive. And in the end, it was really helpful, but didn't completely pull me out of depression, but it was helpful. And then I published the book and a couple of years had passed since I had finished writing that chapter. And I was in a really deep depression again here a couple of months ago. And I was like, I need to try something else because I don't even have the energy to try another round of TMS. And so I'm going to do ketamine. Ketamine, yeah. Mm, Wow. Yeah, psychedelic injections that a doctor gives you that helps to kind of rewire your brain and they don't really know why it helps, but it can be really helpful for treatment-resistant depression. And when I started writing about it online and on my blog, I was afraid people would say, first of all, oh my God, we're so tired of your depression. Can't you come up with a different theme? And secondly, well, but you've already done this other stuff. Why do you keep trying different stuff? And that's not what I got. What I got were all of these people who were like, I'm so proud of you for continuing to work the program of trying to to live your life in the best way that you can. And there were all of these people who were like, oh my God, I did ketamine treatment too. And I was so, I couldn't tell anybody because I'm getting high to get well. I can't tell anybody. And then all of a sudden these people were like, oh, I guess I can't talk about it. And then suddenly there were all these other people who were like, I didn't even know this was a thing. And now I called this clinic and I actually qualify for this treatment. And there's something wonderful about talking about things and being honest about them. And and I was honest about the fact that I did the ketamine and it did pull me out of this really deep depression, but I still have depression. Like it didn't, I'm not in remission. I'm not, you know, some people get to be in remission and, you know, good luck to those people. I'm not one of them. And I always, in some ways, feel like I owe a happy ending to my readers. And what I have realized is that's not what they want. They want a real, yeah. they want real. And oh that's my gosh, I- yes. In fact, yeah. I follow you on social media to get the real. I said to my son the other day, I think she's doing ketamine. Let's see what's happening. And, and, <laughs> and you hadn't given an update for a little while. I was like, oh, darn. And then yesterday... I looked and you had given an update. I was like, oh, yay, we get to find out like how it's working, what's going on. And I did the same thing. I, because of your openness, I went online and I started looking up ketamine and what does it do and where are the great places and who can you trust? And he and I talked about it. He's like, you know what? I don't know that I need it right now, but if I do, how great to know that there are these other things. So again, taking that the stigma away. Yes. Ah, it's such a relief. It makes it so many things. Like once you get open, you start to, what happens is the wisdom of different cultures start to come together. And for a long while, I was obsessed with plant medicines of various kinds, which you can take anywhere you want. Um, (laughs) I just want to say, I'm a huge fan of medication and a huge believer that you don't just, you know, turn the frown upside down, seriously. But when you come out in your integrity, that's when somebody offers you I read a book once that I loved where it, this guy wrote about, it's called The Noonday Demon. And he said, when he finally got on the right drug, he said, I still have my beliefs, but I believe that an angel can be a doctor in a white coat writing a prescription. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and there are all these resources, including plant medicines from a lot of different cultures around the world. Europe lost all of them because they burned the herbalists as witches and they kind of still do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you're scared to talk about ketamine. But I'm just glad people are hearing this because use whatever you've got that yeah. the universe will give you what you need if you are open about what you're experiencing. 
Exactly. Exactly. And we know we have a tendency to feel like if we try a medication or we try a thing and it doesn't work, we feel like, oh, I failed that medication. And so I'm not, right. it's not worth trying it again. And it's absolutely not the case at all. It's that medication failed to work for you. And if mm-hmm. you are literally supposed to go through this path to be like, I mean, it's just like if you're watching TV and you turn on NASCAR and you're like, oh, turns out this is not for me. And then you go further and you're like, Dexter, I love serial killers. I guess this is for me. And then you're like, you just have to find the things that talk to you and the things that work for you. And it's the same thing with treatments and with medications and with the people that you surround yourself in your life to find the things that work for you may not work for everybody else. And that's okay. Yeah. Oh, I call that fractaling your integrity. I know this sounds so stupid, but fractals are natural forms that we create different sizes. So like a twig is kind of like a branch, it's kind of like the tree trunk. So they're the similar shape, but bigger sizes. And what happens when you start to be completely open and honest about what's true for you is that a social group forms around you that is the same shape as you, only a little different. The way a branch is like a twig, only a little different. So you get Surrounded by people who are the same shape as you, who have the same attitudes and fears and problems, and then an even bigger one will form, an even bigger one will form. And ultimately, you know, with the internet, what you said about ketamine, what you're doing, like you did something that worked and then boom, it starts to fractal. And the power of one young woman in Texas, is that where you still are? Yep. Is like now healing millions of people because she not only felt her own truth, but she said it. She had the guts to say it. Yeah. Oh, good. One of the things I love about being a mom is when you have that mother bear instinct to do whatever it is to protect your child. And since Mm -hmm. I'm an information junkie and I was living in Los Angeles, there were so many different things to discover. And one day I drove him to San Diego and we went to one of the Amen brain clinics. And he had a brain scan and we saw that the frontal lobe was always lit up. And the doctor said to my son, you're not crazy to feel like you can't relax. Your brain doesn't shut off. Mm -hmm. And just that piece of knowledge, just knowing that little piece of knowledge has given him so much peace over the years. It's like, oh, nothing's wrong with me. I just have a very active brain. Mm. (laughs) It's like, I love the idea, the more you know, the more you can understand who you are and kind of embrace who you are and go, okay, well, how can I turn this into a superpower? And for him, what he did was he created a business that takes a lot of mental energy and he's one of the best in the world at what he does. And it's his superpower. And just like you know, a lot of people in Hollywood who are hyper successful, they have OCD. If you can take your brokenness and channel it into a way to be creative, it becomes a superpower. And then you have to learn how to power down. Like you guys were saying, you know, we all have that experience of we teach or we do something and then we pass out because we, I remember when I interviewed Tony Robbins forever ago, his, I'm talking out of turn, but oh, well, we're just secrets here. (laughs) His executive assistant said to me, you know, after these four day events, he just passes out, like can't even talk. And I was like, thank God, the guy's human. Like, yeah, we pass out and recover as best as we can. Yes, exactly. I just Just passed out right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) I have have the same thing when it doesn't even last for the four days, but I have to work around where I'm like, okay, well, 
if I'm going to do the podcast, I can't do anything else for the rest of the day. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. I have this and then I can't do this. And when I would do a book tour, I would go like all these amazing places and I would get there and I would have people who would reach out and they would be like, hey, you're in New York. We'd like to take you to Broadway. We'd like to do this. We'd like to. And, and I can't do any of it. I mean, I can't even talk, like even people who are my best friends who are just, oh my gosh, you're finally in New York. Let's have dinner. And I just, I'm like, I can't. I yep. know I will get sick. The only thing I can do is just travel and do the book tour and then go lay back down and do the book tour. And so people are always like, what city are you in? I don't know. I'm in a hotel. I literally have no idea because I will not see anything except for the bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. I so identified with that part of Broken because I I spent whole weeks just eating power bars and tap water because I was at some (laughs) spa thing and people would talk to me if I left the room. One time I was signing a book. (laughs) This is before my integrity vow. But in my head always was the phrase, run away, run away, (laughs) run away. And I literally wrote it because I'm like, what's your name? How are you? And I'm trying to write and talk at the same time. And I literally wrote like, dear Helene, run away, Martha Begg. <laughs> and I had to tear out the title page to like buy her another book. And stuff. <laughs> it was horrifying. She was being followed by a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was at a book signing once in, I think it was maybe in Las Vegas. And it was, there were like a ton of people there and they weren't necessarily there for me. It was like a book fair kind of thing. And I got so overwhelmed and I knew that I couldn't leave. And so I got underneath the table and just sat underneath the table. And as people would come up, I would just lift up the red tablecloth and be like, hi, I'm here. You want me to sign your book? And they were so, (laughs) and I felt so dumb, but they were so kind. And anybody who saw me under there and saw me and they were like, oh, you're having anxiety, right? They would look at me and they would be like, this book is for me. Or they would look at me and go, oh, this bitch is crazy. And in that case, my book was not for them. You know, so it worked out great. Right. Have you ever hidden in the curtains, like when you had to speak in front of people with with the big jumbotrons and everything, and you give your speech, you're like, yeah. And then you go and there's a curtain. And instead of reconnecting with your handlers, you just go into the folds of the curtain because it's open and you can hide in there for hours. It's great. 100%. I hide in bathrooms. That's my major place. I'm like, excuse me, I have to go potty. And then I stay in there as long as I can. But people follow you. Oh my God, I had that happen. They'll follow you into the damn bathroom. Oh, I had that happen. I love you all out there, but really? I remember one time I was at an event with my best friend and it was a big speaking event. And the guy who was on stage announced me. He was like, hey, I want to introduce you to my ghostwriter. She's at the front. I was at the front table. And I, at the bathroom break, there must've been 40 people trying to talk to me about helping them write their books. And my Mm -hmm. best friend who I had always said to her, you know, I just don't tell anybody what I do. She thought I had like a weird fame thing. She was like, oh, Linda thinks she's famous. And finally, she sees the line. She goes, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. I said, honey, everybody wants to write a book. Like, this is what I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> do you guys have that? Do people barrage you? Like, how do, can you help me get published? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I got a lot of that, especially because I have a bookstore. And so I have a lot of people who are like, not only can you help me get published, which first of all, no, because I barely managed to do it. Like it was completely on us. <laughs> <laughs> but then secondly, and they're like, you know, oh, I've got all these books and can you, can you put them in your bookstore? And I'm like, 
I can't because I have a general manager and like she picks all the that stuff. And wow. so you have to talk mm. to her. And- oh God. Well, oh. I write self-help. So it's always a memoir and they always want to tell me this. And they always say, you and I write exactly alike. And I think, why do you need me then? But they always, it's like, okay, while you're signing my book, let me start. Okay, I first got married at 17. His name was Ben. He was a complete asshole. Now, what, and, it's, and like 20 minutes later, I'm writing Run Away in their book. So, yeah, it's true. It's I, think that, I think that desire to share our stories is so universal. And I think everybody does have a story. So what I find in my work, and Martha, let me ask you about this, because I think as a coach, you're really going to relate to this. One of the biggest challenges I have in my striving constantly to be honest is I have to tell people the truth about their work. So for me, mm. I agonize. I agonize. Oh, so yeah. When a client comes to me and I love them so much, I know they've spent 10 years on their book. Maybe they're getting up there in years and they're really worried about their limitation of time. And it's so hard to tell somebody that I don't think they're ready yet to go to agents because I'm the one who sends them tape. Mm. So I've risked in the past, I've sent people before they were ready and a couple of those agents don't call me back anymore. So I am very respectful of their time. And yet every single time I have had that hard conversation with a writer, they amaze me because they mm. want the truth. They're relieved. They say things like, you know what? Something told me I wasn't ready. I just didn't want mm. to, I didn't want to know it or I just needed specifics. And If they can see a path forward, obviously I tell them what I think they need to do, whether or not I'm right, I have an idea. They're no longer tempted to lie to themselves. They no longer want to lie to anybody else. And they really, that whole idea of the truth setting you free is so real. They bounce back quickly. They trust that their idea is divine. They recommit to it. They show up for their art in almost every case. And Just like my sister telling me, Linda, oh my God, it's so not ready. And I wanted to die. When I do the work to make it ready, I'm always so grateful. So how do you work with that, Martha? Okay, so don't you ever meet people who just, it's not going to happen? Don't you meet people who say, here's my rewrite and it's like worse? Yes, but no, 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 no. Okay, so a lot of people who teach retreats take writing samples because they want to know that that person has what it takes. None of us ever want to try to help somebody Mm -hmm. we can't help. Not all money is green. I'm not going to take somebody's money unless I can help them. So yes, I do turn away people if I think they're grandiose to the point of like, oh, my idea is so good. I'm going to be on Oprah next month. I'm like, you don't even realize how long it takes to write a book. And you're not even open to hearing the reality of publishing schedules. However, those people are few and far between. What I see is that if somebody's mission is so ironclad and if their enthusiasm is nonstop and if they have an idea that's worthy, I don't care if they can't write because if they're open to finding a ghostwriter, not me, I don't do that anymore, but if they're open to finding an editor, if they have the passion, I have been wrong about people thinking, oh my God, it's not going to happen. And then 10 years later, they write a hell of a damn good book. And it does happen. So yes and no. Mm. It's hard coming back when I tell them what to do. They do the rewrite and it's still not even close to ready. But there is always a way. The blunt truth for me is I grew up such an incredible people pleaser. That was my primary division for my integrity. And when I started telling the truth, I didn't do it well. 
<laughs> and I didn't do it from this divine love place at all. And people were furious at me and people broke off relationships and I lost a lot of people. And it still happens every time I go on an integrity cleanse where I'm especially <laughs> honest. So I just want to shout out to all the people who've told someone the truth and had them say, I hate you forever. Because a lot of people say, I call it momification. You have a self oh, yeah. writer. They think, here's my perfect mama. And I've literally had people stand up in crowds, take the mic and say, I need to come live with you at your house. And I would say no. And they would go on like a reign of terror. <gasps> she's not what she says she is. She's a piece of crap. Don't let you like no. big time rage, like all the rage they have at their own crazy mother comes out at me. And honestly, this is the issue I'm working with hardest right now in my own life because people do get really fixated and angry and it doesn't matter. If you yeah. serve yeah. them for that reason, you are truly effed, I will say. You are yeah. screwed. So you have to tell the truth anyway. And here's what I want to tell everybody listening. It doesn't matter if they get mad at you, if you get your life back. Uh, it's fine. You know, it doesn't matter if they kill you. People have threatened to kill me. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you get your real life back. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, a really funny boundaries. story later. <laughs> yeah. Boundaries are so important. And I, I didn't realize when I first started how important they were. And I ended up getting this stalker who was schizophrenic and he thought we were married and he was very angry at me and he'd send me death threats. And I actually had to move just to get away. And it was really, really scary. And so in some ways that has sort of helped me with creating boundaries. But I also had to kind of relearn that 99.9% of the people who were like, oh my God, I love you. You're amazing are such wonderful, fantastic, beautiful people. And that, yes, there is going to be the 0.1% that they're going to get mad if I don't respond to them in email and then they send me these horrible emails, Mm. you know. But refocusing on the positive people has been a really helpful thing for me because for so much of my stuff, it really is like a Ferris wheel of... I get so far down where I'm like, I'm never going to write again. I'm not funny. I'm worthless. And then I get from readers and they'll send me these handwritten letters of you helped me and that I was, I thought, felt like I was alone and now I'm able to get help. Mm -hmm. And then I'll read that and I'll be like, okay, well, maybe my words do make a difference. And so I'll share more. And then other people share because of that. And it becomes this, this thing, like I get so much moment back. Your um, comments mm-hmm. on your blog, Jenny, are so magical. They what's really so, are. What's so amazing about reading your blog is to see like, you'll write about ketamine or something and you're just sharing. And then so many people have so much to say about it that then, oh my gosh, can you talk about your folder of what now, 40? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Folder of 24, but... All with a folder of 24. So when I first started writing about mental illness, uh, was I started on my blog and I was very afraid of how people would respond and that they would run away. And instead, what they said was, you know, me too. And I thought I was the only one who felt like this. And I started getting these letters from people who said that they were actively in the process of planning their suicide and decided instead to get help, not because of what I wrote, but because they saw thousands of people in the comment section saying, Mm. I'm worthless too. And they thought, well, that can't possibly be right. And if it's not right for them, maybe it's also not right for me. 
Mm-hmm. And so I had this folder of 24 letters of people who had gotten help and were still alive. And I would go back to that whenever I would feel like my words were worthless. And I always wonder if people in the comment section who just anonymously said, me too, I also feel worthless. If they realize that just sharing that may have saved someone's life, that someone's mom or kid or dad is still alive because they anonymously shared their pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it just says so much for the fact that if we open up and we talk about the fact that everybody has a struggle and maybe yours is mental illness or maybe it's something completely different, but whatever it is, there are probably a lot of people who would relate to it and understand it and want to help. Martha, (sighs) for that story you told me, in the past about you had written Leaving the Saints and you were so scared to go back to Utah and you went to a Starbucks and you were like, oh my God, I need to wear a mask and goggles so nobody knows who I am because God forbid, I'm like offending the whole universe here. And that woman, what did she say to you at the counter? Yeah, I was growing up in Utah. Like (laughs) that's sort of why I got the rage reaction. When you leave a religion that is a very intense life world religion and you actually write a book about how you, one of the, big figures of it, who was my dad, was kind of crazy and abusive and whatnot. Anyway, you write that kind of thing, you're going to get a lot of blowback, which I did. And But I had to go back to Utah because of the snow. Because if you have ever skied in the snow in Utah, you can't, it ruins you for everywhere else, right? So I literally had a mask and goggles, <laughs> a ball and clava. And I came to the Salt Lake airport and I'm like, I literally put the goggles on, not the ball at Clava, but the goggles. And I like scurried to the nearest Starbucks because Mormons don't drink coffee, right? Yes. So I get to the Starbucks and I'm like, (laughs) Oasis. And I order like a quadruple shot something or other, which would send any Mormon straight to hell. And the barista makes up my coffee and I've got my goggles on. And then I give her my money. She gives me the change and she grabbed my hand and said, thank you for writing that book. And I took off my goggles and I said, I do not care what happens to me. And I stopped counting after a couple of thousand of people had written me. And you're absolutely right, Jenny. It's almost one of the cures for my moments of depression to go and read those communiques because they're people shouting out of my own darkness to Mm -hmm. connect with me, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not just when... They write to me and they're sad and they, I feel better. When I go and I read what they've written, it pulls me up and it starts to be this self-reinforcing cycle. And it's kind of magical. It is. Oh, my gosh. So to both of you, you're writing something, you get an instinct and you sit down and you can feel the words flowing. What's the feeling difference between, okay, this is going to be a micro blog for social media. This is going to be a full blog for my website and my newsletter. Or this is going to be a chapter in a book? Well, for me, as I'm writing it, I can usually tell what is going, if I can't fit it into three paragraphs, that I'm like, okay, this actually could go someplace else. <laughs> um, but a lot of times what I'll do is I'll put something on the blog just to kind of feel out and be like, do people like this? Because sometimes I'll think, oh, this is so funny. And 30 people say, eh, and yeah, okay, that's funny. 
And then I'll post something else and I'm like, ah, oh, this is just a throwaway thing. And a thousand people are like, oh my gosh, this is the funniest thing I've ever written. And so, <laughs> so a lot of times I will take stuff that I've had on my blog and be like, I could flesh this out. Like this is one paragraph of a story, but I actually could make this into right. you know, uh, something that is a chapter long. Like how did Beyonce start? <laughs> okay, so... Beyonce the Giant Metal Chicken was probably <laughs> the most viral thing that I ever wrote. The funniest thing yeah. I've ever, one of the funniest things so I've ever funny. Oh it's absolutely ridiculous. And so here, what's funny is it went so crazy viral. Like it's one of the only things where I actually put it from the blog straight into the book. Everything else, the book is pretty much new kind of stuff. But with Beyonce, it happened. And what's funny is people always think like that it's really funny and that probably Victor, right after it happened, after I bought this six foot giant metal chicken and you know stuck it in front of the house to uh, mess with him, that <laughs> he probably thought it was really funny. He did not think it was funny. He was really uh, angry. <laughs> he's very angry. And, um, and he was so mad about it that I was like, okay, I have to wait to write about it because it is funny. And I was like, but I got to have to wait to write about it when he's not going to pay attention to the blog because it's going to make him mad again. So I was like, I'm going to wait because I... I had to go to Hawaii for a business thing. And he was like, I need you to come because I need you to help me set up. I need you to... So I was like, that's fine. And I was like, oh, and while we're there, then I'll post the blog and he'll never see it because he's going to be busy with stuff. Not knowing that it would go super viral and that my blog would crash. <laughs> was my IT person? That guy who's mad at me already and is mad again that I've been writing this post. Oh my gosh. It was... That's it was so good. But, and now, now he thinks it's very funny. And now I'm like, Beyonce made us. And, and he's like, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> now, now it's funny. 10 years later. <laughs> how about you, Martha? How do you know where something goes? Well, the way you described it, you sit down, you start to write the words, start to flow. How do you know what they are? That never happens to me, ever. What? What happens to me is I get stuck. I am stuck somewhere in a feeling that is bad. And I can't get out of it. And so I start to flail and read and listen. And I, I'm just desperately trying to find a way out. And then I kind of do. And then I spend all this time thinking, how did I get out of that? And eventually I think of a way. And if it's easy, I can put it in a block. And then it's like getting a lump of clay and I can feel how big the shape is. One of the reasons I can't start writing until I'm ready with an almost rough draft, because for years I couldn't use my hands. Right. I had to type with a pencil. I had like casts on my hands and I would put this pencil in between my fingers and hit the keys with the eraser end, which is not the most rapid typing strategy in the world. <laughs> so I still type pretty slowly, but it's like a piece of clay and I can feel how big it is. And then I do this little trick that I have because once a warden in a woman's prison told me that when they tossed the cells, one of the things that they found most often were copies of my column from Oprah Magazine under the mattresses. So that changed my whole way of writing. So I get my little lump of clay and I have my experience how I got out of hell again. That's why this book goes into hell and then out of it. Yeah. And then I sit down with the woman in the cell who was probably born without a chance and probably doesn't have a chance and still has a soul and still has a heart. And I have to shape the clay in the way that it will flow into her most easily because she doesn't have any spoons to spare. You guys are familiar with spoon theory? How many spoons of energy? She's got no spoons. I've got no spoons. So it has to be the easiest possible way to sort of 
like slump it into her, <laughs> into her mind and soul. And if it takes a very long time to do that, then I'm like, oh no, I have to write a whole book now. That's really a lot. So that's how it works for me. Wow. Okay. So now this, you've brought up such an interesting point because for me, I just took for granted that the ideas come, they shock you. You have to sit down, you have to write them as they're coming. To me, I'm a downloader. I've always been a downloader. So how do you guys get your ideas? Jenny, how do they come to you? For me, I will have an idea of what I want to write about and I will have just some small little notes. And until I come up with exactly how I'm going to make it into the chapter, it will just live in my head for, and it may be months before it finally hits and it finally is like, oh, I need to do it chronologically. Oh, I needed to do it in a list form. Oh, I know how I'm going to do it. Oh, and what happens is when I have that inspiration and it happens really rarely. So when it happens, I will run into the house because it's usually when I'm out walking that it comes. And I will run into the house and I will scream, no one talk to me. Because if anything <laughs> it's gone. It's completely gone. And I will go and I will sit. And I, if I'm really lucky, I will get 15 minutes worth of writing in. And that's enough to at least give me an idea of like, this is how this is going to look. If I were to write it, my husband is always like, just write. This is your job. Just sit down eight to five. You know what you're going to write about. But if I take something and I write it and it's not the way that I want it the first time, it's not funny, it's not good. And that's not to say I don't rewrite it a million times. But if it doesn't sing to me the first time, if it didn't make mm-hmm. it the first time, then it's dead. It's dead information. It's dead material. And I have almost never will I go back to it and go, maybe I can make it funny because it's, <laughs> it's already yeah. dead on the paper. Isn't that interesting mm-hmm. how you can feel the energy of an idea? You can feel when it dies. Yeah. For me, the energy doesn't get me writing. It holds my attention to things that I don't understand. That's how I know something's coming is that like I wrote this last book and did the sort of launch. And then I got obsessed with doing this painting. And I was getting up at three in the morning, obsessed with this painting for months. And I'm like, I have no idea why this is happening. And then I'll get obsessed with brain science and books on how to make waffles. And I'll just like inhale them. And I don't know why. And then, and I actually read the brain science on this. All these different things come together. And in the brain, it's called a far transfer. All these different problems and solutions come together in the subconscious brain. And then they click. And then they literally like toss an idea fully formed into the frontal lobes. It's called the Eureka effect. And then it's like, bam, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it works. Well, and I think that's why you've been so successful all these years, especially as a columnist, because you're able to put disparate ideas together in such a unique way that you can hold the attention span of somebody who may not be a big book reader, right? And they're like, what is this weird thing she's talking about? You hook us with the most odd little combination. That is so funny because you just said to me, I hook people's attention. And the reason I swear to God is that I have such severe ADD. (laughs) I'll be like, Frontal lobes, like the development of the hippocampus. You know, it's, I literally am like that. Moose! I ran out of a meeting once. Moose! There's a moose outside! <laughs> so that's hilarious. I'm keeping people's attention because I have no attention span. Oh my gosh. Now, last thing. Jenny, you said your first book took you like 11 years to write. The second one took like five years to write. How do you keep the attention on the book over a long period of time. 
Do you mean like marketing the book that's come out before or the one that I'm working on? No, the one that you're working on. Because what I've found with my clients is their biggest challenge is sticking with something over the long term. Yeah. So I do a couple of different things. What I found is everybody has different tools and some work for you and some don't. For me, one of the things that has been the most helpful is I will, as I'm writing a book, you already have kind of an idea of like, here are going to be your, say, 30 chapters. And so I will put up on my wall 30 index cards and they're just put up with thumbtacks. And each one of them I'll write like the chapter name. And as I go in, if I work on something, I will say like, and they all start with, I've got 0% done on every single one of these chapters. And as I'm working on the chapter, I will, you know, do like, and maybe I only write one sentence that day, but I can go back and I can change it to 1% done and put it back up. (laughs) It's always up there. And you can see it moving. And all of a sudden, you know, after like a year, you can see like the ones that are starting and you scratch it out every time and you scratch out and you're like, now it's at 12%. And oh you start to see like, oh, half of these are at 100%. I'm halfway finished with this book. Oh, I can do this. That is a really good visual cue that I've never heard of. It's very really? I do it with post-it notes. I do have you? all these ideas. And then I have to put them in a linear form. And I put them on the wall or on a bunch of butcher paper. And as they go, I just pull them off. So the, the wall gets cleaner. The book is closer to getting finished. But I also like every day when I set an appointment to write and I set a timer to be disciplined, and when I don't want to do it, I go back to, this is really true. I go and I sit in the dark in the prison cell with the woman who can't, well, will never get out of prison yeah. and never had a chance. And I'm like, I will not let you down. I am going to start writing now. And she just sits there the whole time. And I'm like, I can't do that to her. I can't, I can't bail on her. And she just keeps me writing. Oh. And then I get to pull off the sticky notes. And I love that. I don't do that at all. Like this. <laughs> now I'm like, okay, maybe I need to do that. I think your system works really well. All right. I want to close with each of you asking the other a question that you most want to know about the other. Because I know you're big fans of each other. So Martha, what is one mm. question you'd like to ask Jen? Okay. So I know the depths. I mean, this whole book is about going into the depths of hell. And that you only get to paradise by going all the way through hell. But, and maybe this is just what we've been talking about the whole time, but what I've always wondered when I read your books is in the darkness, how does the spark of humor come up? Because I think because it is so dark, it is so funny. But how do you light that match? Like, yeah. When it comes to like truly horrific things that you're writing about, I have found that if you can laugh at them, they become smaller and these monsters become more manageable. And not only do they become more manageable, but they are more relatable to other people. And that's, I think, one of the biggest things is I want people to read my book who don't have arthritis and miscarriages and depression and blah, blah, blah. Like I want somebody to read this book and have them go, I don't have any of this stuff, but this is really funny and interesting. And then later on in their life, maybe they'll have somebody in their life that does struggle with that. And they'll be like, oh, actually, mm. oh, okay, I know what not to say when you're doing <laughs> So I think it's just all about if I can find those funny things myself, 
that's what I do first to save myself. And then I use them to help others. Amazing. Um, So my question I think would be, and it's something that I've sort of struggled with in my own work. Is there ever a time when you feel like you've shared too much? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Oh my goodness. Yeah, this book's called The Way of Integrity. So I put it all in there, babies. My editors came back and they were like, TMI, we do not need to know your relationship history. Please unwrite that. (laughs) And that's the, but even when I pull back to the level that my editors think is appropriate, my tendency is to write it now. And then Anne Lamott, bless her heart, she wrote, write as if your parents were dead. And I took her up on that. (laughs) And it did not work well. Okay. And then I noticed that she wrote about her mother after her mother died. So what happens to me is I share everything. I share too much. I am honest to a fault. And then I just take, I stand in the stalks with my head and hands in the clamps and people throw eggs and rotten fruit at me and kick me in the leg. And it's okay. It's all okay. Because at least I have my whole self. And then it's hilarious. Really, truly, that stalks are one of the funniest places to be. So... (laughs) Love it. Thank you for reminding me again, Martha, that the more honest I am, the more magical I am. Mm. I think that's your greatest legacy that you can leave is to help us to be more honest with ourselves and the world. And I'm really, really, really grateful and indebted to you. And Jenny, thank you for allowing me to have so much more understanding of how to be a mother to somebody who sometimes struggles. And that's just been a really, really big gift for me. Oh, well, thank you. And this was so much fun. I loved this. It was. I'm I'm so happy. I'm glad I waited. My God, you made me be patient, Jenny. I'm sorry. That's something for everybody to take heart. Guys, creativity takes a long time and people are busy and shit takes time and it just takes as long as it takes. And then when your book is finally published or even done and then published or when your connections manifest, it's always the right time, isn't it? Exactly. Yep. You guys. Or so we say to make the people happy. I'm going to kick you in the shins. <laughs> you might as well join the crowd. Jenny, I love you. Thank you so much for coming on with me. And it's been such a privilege and an honor. And Linda, always. So much fun. Thank you, everybody. Love. Wow. So much fun to be back. Thank you for playing with me, Jenny and Martha and Thanks to you, you awesome, beautiful listener, for showing up wherever you are to be with us. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a comment or some sparkly stars to help other writers find us. And let me know on social media, if you're brave enough, to take Martha's integrity cleanse or oath and what kind of magic ensues. And of course, I want to hear how Jenny's book, Broken, helps you to become more whole. Goodness gracious, Google Jenny's blog, the blog S, for the aforementioned Beyonce the Metal Chicken Post, even if you've read it before because you're going to laugh so hard, you'll be snorting and embarrassing yourself and not even care because that kind of raucous laughter is so deeply fun and fulfilling. There is a reason things go viral, y'all. 
So consider this your book mama homework. Oh, and I made something for you guys a few months back. If you haven't already heard my free audio with my very favorite writing and publishing tips, I named it Publish or Perish. It's about 45 minutes long. I produced it to sound like one of these episodes. And in it, I cover the things I wish I had known when I was starting out. Things that could have shortcutted my process from idea to sold. They do it all the time for my clients. Tips like the number one secret I have ever found for taking writing from good to unignorable fast. The top three little known mistakes I've seen most new writers make that prevent them from landing that coveted book contract. And how to script your book proposal success so that you land your dream agent and dream your book deal. Imagine a team supporting you, loving your book as much as you do. No more grinding away alone. I've got a team now with my publisher and you guys, it is magic. You can download that audio now in a flash and I can't wait for you to hear it and share it and let me know how this info rocks your writing world. People are telling me it's helping them fall back in love with their book. And that makes this book mama so, so happy. So you can find that free audio at bookmama.com slash gift. Thank you so much, guys. We will drop a new episode very, very soon. In the meantime, I love you guys. Right on. Right on.